Last two weeks we've covered Christ on the cross. Uh, two weeks ago we talked about His physical sufferings and what that meant. Last week we talked about His spiritual sufferings and what that meant. Now, Mark 16 is the resurrection. sad part about the resurrection is we normally don't hit it unless we're uh, in the Easter season. Other than that, the resurrection doesn't get hit too much and the resurrection is the key, key point of the Christian faith. And we'll get to that today in a little bit. But before we get to talking about the resurrection, I want to talk about faith here for a second. And this is where Hebrews 11 comes in. Hebrews 11 is known sometimes as the great faith chapter. Because it's a great chapter just on faith. And it goes through all of the Old Testament saints, what they went through, how faith got them through it. And if you're ever in your Christian walk feeling a little down and you need a pick-me-up in your faith, Hebrews 11 is the way to go. Because the truth of the matter is we're all going to go through difficult times. And during those difficult times, our faith is going to be tested. And what happens when our faith is tested determines a lot about our Christian walk. And I bet you there's some people in this room today that are coming in with a really heavy heart. You're coming in in a really difficult time and you're like, okay, God, I know I need to have faith, but how do I do this? Well, let's start out with this. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Now these are some important points. Verse 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. See, so often in our Christian walk, we say, show me and then I'll believe. And God says, well, if you believe first, then I'll show you. Now we don't like that. Give me just a little taste, Lord. Give me a little proof. And then once you give me a little bit of proof, you'll have me heart, soul, and mind. And God says, no, no, no. Give me your heart, soul, and mind, and then I'll show you what's going to happen. I'll show you what the next step is. Now, for some of us, we don't like that. And you're going to struggle with faith then for the rest of your life. Because you're always going to be saying, I don't like this whole not knowing the next step. I don't like this whole idea of trusting in this ambiguous God that sits up in heaven and He supposedly knows everything and He's going to direct me through my life and in all things He's going to work for the good. And I tell you, you've got a serious faith issue. Because that's the way God likes to work. And that's not that He's trying to have power over you. He's trying to say, wait a second, this is not some type of team effort. This is not some partnership. Very simply put, He's God, we're not. And He says, do you trust me? Do you trust me to get you through this? Do we have that faith to do it? And I think it's interesting when it talks about faith, what's the first example to use of faith? Verse 3, By faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God. So the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Isn't it interesting, this is the thing I've noticed in Christianity, is as the evolutionary ideas come up and as the creation ideas come up, it seems like sometimes as Christians that we want to fight back scientifically. And I don't think there's anything wrong with using science to show things and to help us have a deeper understanding of God's creation. And it was just uh, last year, we spent three Sunday evenings talking about Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. And David Perry did the first one on Genesis 1 and we looked at creation from a scientific background. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But the key part of creation is faith. Now, isn't it interesting throughout the Bible, God has never asked us to prove that He exists. And I think sometimes as Christians, we feel that burden. To my unsaved friend and loved one, I have to prove to them God exists. Guys, you can't prove to Him He exists. He, that friend has to accept it on faith. Just like when it comes to creation, just like when it comes to anything, we have to have faith that God, we know and understand that this is above us. And we have to trust you. I've shared with you before, I'm a big astronomy guy. I was out last night looking at the stuff. 
and uh, Mars is out, and it's beautiful. I was looking at the Orion Nebula, all this stuff. And I'm thinking, and Lord, you know, it, it seems almost so fake, so fake. The first time I took the boys out, and we looked at the moon through the telescope, Judah went around front and looked at the front of the telescope because he wanted to see where the picture was. <laughs> and isn't that our human mindset? You know, when you look through that, like, okay, that can't be real. I mean, come on. You know, the Earth is, two, I mean, the moon is 250,000 miles away and it orbits us. I mean, what's going on here? By faith. We have to trust that. And I've used these examples before, and forgive me for the repetition, but it's amazing how we have a hard time with spiritual matters of faith, but matters of life we don't have a hard time with. No one here is worrying about how the electricity works in this building. No one here checked your chair before you sat down. No one goes and tries to figure out how your car starts. And faith, you put the key in, you turn it. Faith, you came and sat down. And faith, someone came in this morning and flipped on the light switches. You may say, okay, well, that's not faith because I've experienced how many times have I flipped on a light switch in my life? How many times have I sat down in a chair in my life? Still, it's a matter of faith. How many times has God gotten you through things? How many times has the Lord been there? Well, God's never been there for me. And that's where I disagree with you. Because when you start getting that mindset, you start losing the preeminence of who God is. And that's one of the key things today is faith. So let's move on with this. Verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. If you remember correctly back from Genesis, Abel's the one that offered his sacrifice in faith. And God says, that's what I like. I like it when they do it in faith. Verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken away so he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Verse 6 is the key, and this is where we're going to stop. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's where it comes down to. Is If you want to please God, God says, how's your faith? Do you trust me? Do you trust that even though it's a dark time right now, I'm going to get you through it? Do you trust that even though you don't know what the next step is, I'm going to get you through it? Do we trust him? Now you may be thinking, okay, this is where I struggle. How is my faith supposed to get better? Well, go to that reference now in Mark 9. I was telling you to keep your hand in. Mark 9. And as you're going to Mark 9, I just want to share a quick verse with you. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing and by hearing the Word of God. If you want your faith to grow, get into God's Word. Because the more you study God's Word, the more your faith grows. The more your faith grows, the more you're pleasing God. The more you're pleasing God, you're going to want to get into God's Word more. It's this wonderful, righteous cycle. I study God's Word, my faith grows deeper. As the more I grow deeper in God, the more I please God. The more I please God, I want to please Him more. And it just keeps repeating and repeating. But the thing is, when somebody comes to me and says, I want to go deeper in my walk with Christ, but they want to exclude time in the Word, they want to exclude time in prayer, they want to exclude a serving heart attitude at church, you're really not going to go deeper. It's just going to be that fringe, thin ice relationship with Christ. There's really not going to be a relationship. It's going to be a Sunday morning, hi, how are you? And maybe it's a Sunday morning once a month, once every two months, once every three months. That's really not a relationship. A relationship with the Lord is a daily time where we say, God, I want to be with you. Not because I have to, but because I choose to. But what happens when our faith is faltering? And we desire that, we want that, but to be honest, there's not a follow-through. Well, look here in Mark 9. Mark 9, we have a guy brings his son, 
And his son is dealing with uh, some time that looks like some type of epilepsy, some type of seizure here. Verse 20, it says, And they brought him to him. So they bring him to Jesus. When he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And he often has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him, but you can do anything. Have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible for him who believes. Let's stop right there at verse 23. Okay, that's what Christ says. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, when we hear that, our public answer to that is, that's right, I believe that. But deep down inside, do you really believe that? I mean, do you really, really believe that? I mean, do we believe that all things are possible to him who believes? Right now, if you have kids, your kids are back in Sunday school, and I don't know for sure what they're going through today, but they're going to probably learn something amazing about God. Maybe Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. Maybe when the Israelites were leaving Egypt, God parted the Red Sea. They walked across on dry land. Maybe it's Lazarus being raised from the dead. Something that we would call almost unbelievable. But do we believe that? I mean, isn't it interesting that we can believe that Jonah lived three days and three nights in the fish? We can believe that God parted the Red Sea. We can believe that God raised the dead. But can God still heal people today? Well, I don't know. I mean, that sounds like an Old Testament, New Testament thing. I don't know. Aren't we still living in the New Testament? Last time I checked. But do we believe that? Do we still believe that God could part the Red Sea? Do we still believe that God can make the sun stand still? At the same time, do we still believe... Those are too big, right? So let's go a little easier. Can God save your marriage? Can God save your child? Can God just get you through tomorrow at work? See, isn't it amazing how these big things we don't necessarily have a problem with because they're in the past. Those are fun stories. But present day application. God, I don't know if you can get me through this one. It's a big day tomorrow. Help me, Lord. Lord, I don't know if you're going to be able to get me through. I don't know where the money's coming to pay those bills next week that are due. Present day application. Why is that so much harder than the big things? Because if we would take a poll here today, and I bet how many of you would ask, how many of you believe that God created the heavens and the earth? I would hope most everybody here would say yes. Okay? Now, how many of you believe that that person you think could never be saved could be saved through Christ? I don't know. He's a tough one. Tougher than creating the world? <coughs> It's amazing sometimes how our faith starts to wither and wilt when we start seeing a problem that we perceive is too big. So Jesus comes to him, verse 23, if you can believe all things are possible to him who believes. I love the answer in verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's honesty. Lord, I believe you can, but I'm struggling with this one. Help me. And maybe that's where you're at today. Is James, I hear what you're saying. I believe God can do those things, but I'm struggling with the Lord. Help my unbelief. Guys, there's nothing wrong with praying that. I love an honest prayer. I hate it when we do that fakeness before God and we think that we're fooling Him. Lord, I love you and I just want to go deeper in you. No, you don't. (laughs) I know that. Lord, I believe you can do all things. Mm, No, I see your heart. You don't. You're struggling with this one. That's honesty. Lord, help my unbelief. And maybe you're in a spot right now where you're saying, okay, I think this one's too big. I think this one's too big for God. I don't think He can fix this one. 
I don't think He can heal my broken heart. I don't think He can forgive my sin. I don't think He can save that person. Fill in the blank, whatever it is. If that's what it is, then this message is for you. Because that's what we're going to deal with today, is this idea of unbelief and saying, Lord, I've got to trust that you're going to get me through this no matter what. Now, i just got to share this with you real quick. When I say trust that God's going to get you through it, what exactly does that mean? I don't know. I'll be the first one to say that. An example I always go back to is when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace back in the book of Daniel. If you remember that story from your uh, childhood days. They're thrown in the fiery furnace. And the reason they're thrown in the fiery furnace is because they wouldn't bow down and worship the false god that Nebuchadnezzar set up. But before they go into the fiery furnace to be destroyed, they say something that's amazing. They very simply say, highly paraphrased, God is able to save us from this fiery furnace. But if He chooses not to save us from this fiery furnace, He's still God. And that's the amazing thing about it. Their faith was, you know what? God can do this. But if God chooses not to do this, that's fine too. Now, that's pretty impressive. But do we have that same faith? Lord, I'm praying for Your touch. I'm praying for Your healing here. But if you choose not to heal, You're still God and I still need to worship You. Lord, I'm praying for this situation at work to be worked out. Can You please take care of this? But you know what? If it doesn't go the way I want, You're still God and I'll worship You. My faith won't falter because of it. See, so often our faith is strong as long as everything works out the way we think it's supposed to. And as soon as it doesn't work out the way we think it should, well, then our faith starts to falter. Well, here in Mark 16 now, Jesus just suffered this horrific death on the cross. All the disciples fled from Him. And now He's getting ready to rise from the dead. Now, around Easter, we always go to one of these passages in the Gospels. Sunrise service, right? And we will sing, up from the grave he arose. We will sing, he is risen. And we will have a great celebration time. And it will be a wonderful, wonderful time because we will talk about how the grave is empty and how it is a picture of God rising from the grave, defeating death, and he can defeat whatever comes our way and we will all be happy and joyous. But 2,000 years ago, when it really happened, nobody was happy or joyous. Nobody had their acoustic guitar by the grave singing up from the grave he arose. They weren't. They weren't camping out in front of the tomb saying, you know, guys, he said three days. This is going to be good. No one did that. They thought he was dead and buried and gone. No faith. Mark 16, verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Let's stop real quick. What are they anointing? A dead body. You know, that's not saying they're going to bring some bread and food because Jesus is hungry after being dead three days. They're bringing stuff to anoint Him. They're expecting to go see a dead body. There is no great element of faith here. No great, the tomb's going to be empty. We can't wait to see our risen Savior. They were sure He was dead and they were so sure He was dead they were going to anoint the dead body. Verse 2, very early in the morning on the first day of the week they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was a very large stone. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. No, the angels excite us. He thinks it's pretty cool. He's probably singing up from the grave heroes. Verse 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee, so there you will see him as he said to you. Now let's just stop for a second. Let's put ourselves back 2,000 years ago. We're going to the tomb. 
the tomb is stones rolled away, the tomb is empty, and there's an angel sitting there. Now that's pretty cool. Now I don't know how I would respond. Generally speaking, in the Bible, when people saw an angel, they usually fainted. I think that'd probably be my response too. But how do they respond? Verse 8. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they were trembled and amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Remember that. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Verse 9. When now he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard it, that he was alive and had seen by her, they did not believe. Remember that phrase, they did not believe. Verse 12. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country and they were told, went in and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Verse 13. Okay, look at the great response from these pillars of faith that went on to write the New Testament. First off, we see the gals running away from the tomb quickly. They trembled, they were amazed. Verse 8, they don't tell anybody. So now we go to the next one. Mary Magdalene finally comes and tells somebody. Verse 11, and they don't believe her. Okay, Jesus appears to two more disciples on the road to Emmaus. Verse 12, verse 13, they don't believe them either. Guys, there's no faith here. See, this is the beautiful part about the Bible. Some people say, okay, how can we know the Bible is true and real? Because if human beings really wrote the Bible, they would not put these things in there. They wouldn't. Because the truth of the matter is, looking back, can you imagine being in the early church and being Peter or one of the twelve, and as the book of Mark is being written here, and the book of Mark, most people believe, was written obviously by Mark with the help of Peter and obviously with the stamp of approval of the Holy Spirit. Now, if I was in Peter's place, what I really want to put in there, that I fled, I denied him three times, I wept and mourned, and that when Jesus rose from the dead, I didn't really believe it happened. The most important thing ever to happen in Christianity is Jesus rising from the dead and I really didn't believe it. See, the Bible is so brutally honest. So brutally honest. These people did not believe. They did not accept. Can't we relate to that? Something amazing happens, and we don't believe it. Now, maybe I'm the only one that struggles with this, and maybe none of you will admit it because you're all liars. I don't know. But sometimes, don't you ever hear one of those testimonies that sound too good to be true? And you say, that's too good to be true. You know, somebody was healed with cancer and your first response is somebody comes up, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? We prayed for them to be healed and they got healed. And you're like, oh my goodness, God, it's great. And then your next thought is, boy, the doctors really screwed that misdiagnosis up, didn't they? Wait, wait a second, God didn't heal them? Well, maybe God did, but I'm willing to bet the doctors really just misdiagnosed that person. Or, you know, have you ever got the one where, oh boy, so-and-so's in really bad health. The doctors think they're just not going to make it through. So let's pray. So we pray. Then you find out later, oh, they're doing amazing. They're doing great. And your first thought is, boy, that doctor really jumped the gun on that. Must not have been as bad as he or she thought. We do the same thing. We don't believe sometimes, do we? And then when you hear those things that are spiritually too good to be true, ah, let's just take it with a grain of salt. Now, I think there's some wisdom in not just jumping after every story. The Bible says that. The Bible says we're supposed to be diligent and check things out to make sure it's approved. But don't get such a rational, thinking mind that the element of faith goes out the window. Because faith is the foundation, cornerstone of what we believe. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. I can't take you back in time 2,000 years ago to show you an empty tomb. You've got to believe in faith that it happened. I can't take you back to the beginning of the world to say, okay, look, nothing, now something. God created it. I can't. 
I can't do it for myself. I can't go in there and say, look, let's get into somebody's body. Here's cancer. Boom, they're healed. Here's no cancer. I can't do that. There's an element of faith that has to happen with that. See, the real deal is we're probably more like the early church. I don't know if I believe. Now, what's, what were they focused on? They weren't focused on the empty tomb. Look at this, verse 4. Verse 3, actually. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? When they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled away for as a very large stone. What's the focus of the gals? The stone. And isn't that the same thing that happens to you and me today? You are so focused on the stone, you're not focusing on what's going on in the tomb. Stone's big. And I tell you, some of you got some pretty big stones going on in your life right now. And those stones are so big, so large, you can't move them. And you are so focused on what's wrong, and you're so focused on this immovable large stone, you're forgetting that the tomb is empty. That's the main focus. Because I see it when I talk to you. You come in and you say, I've got a hard time going on right now. Can we sit down and talk? So we sit down and talk and I let you get it off your chest. We talk and I say, okay, let's see what the Bible has to say about this. And so we look at the Scriptures, we pray about it. But what do you immediately do? You go right back to the stone. What am I going to do? Well, I, I said, let's pray about it. Let's seek God on this. Let's get some wisdom from Him. Okay, okay. What am I going to do? You're so focused on the stone. And you're so focused on how large the stone is. And then you get angry because people have smaller stones than you do. point is, everybody's got some stone in their life. And they've got some stone that's a big stone to them, and that stone is blocking them going deeper in their walk with Christ. And God keeps trying to tell you, quit focusing on the stone. Focus on the person that can move it. And the person that can move it is the Lord. You know, that grave was not going to keep Christ in there. It wasn't. I don't care how many Roman legions, how many stones... And whatever they did to that grave, God was going to take care and move whatever had to be moved to get that stone out of the way. Now the question comes up, in the problems you're facing today in life, do you have that same type of faith to believe that God can do it? Now I'm not making some blanket statement of believe and whatever you want happens, happens. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying believe to the point of trusting in God that He can take care of that stone and move it. Because what happens is, you finally get somebody who believes that the stone is moved and taken care of. So, verse 10, she, Mary Magdalene, went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. See, you're in one of those two groups in verse 10. You're either telling people about the stone that's been moved in your life or you're mourning and weeping over the stone that's still there. You're one of those two groups. And the sad part is, for those that have the stone moved, they're so excited by what God has done, they want to tell everybody. But for those that still have a stone in your life, you just want to sit there and mourn and weep over the stone in your life. There's a time for mourning and weeping. The Bible says that. There's a time where sorrow seems to rule the day. And if you've gone through something dramatic, something tragic in your life as of late or maybe in the past, you may have a very large stone in your life that you say, James, this one's tough. But the point is, there is nothing that is too big, too large, that God can't take care of. Now, the truth of the matter is, he may not necessarily take care of it in this physical earth. You may have your stone removed when you face eternity in heaven. But that may not be good enough for some of us. Lord, I want the stone moved now. No. The stone doesn't get moved now. The Lord takes care of it. I'll share a quick story with you. pastor friend I know, and uh, through a set of circumstances, he is on dialysis. 
and he's been on dialysis for years and will be on dialysis for years. And obviously anybody who's ever gone through dialysis knows that your life revolves around when the dialysis is going to happen. And that's the key thing. Everything you do, is there a dialysis center near, everything happens and focuses around that. I believe he says he goes like three times a week. But at the same time, he's also one that's gone to Israel numerous times. He goes on missions trips all over the world. And he says part of his walk of faith is making sure that he can work out the details for these dialysis, no matter what third world country he's in, and trust that God's going to take care of it. So he shared his testimony one time where he said, okay, God, why can't you just heal me of this? Because this is such a limitation that, you know, numerous times a week, I am now stuck to these machines for hours, and my whole life has to revolve around this. I could have so much freedom, so much easier movement to just be free from this stone of dialysis. And he prayed for healing, and every time he'd get around somebody, he would always say, hey, pray for me, pray for healing, pray for God to heal us. And he said he finally felt like the Lord spoke to his heart saying, I want you to be on this dialysis because through this dialysis you're going to be able to reach and talk to so many people. And he said when he started realizing that, he thought, you know what, I am hooked up to these machines for hours and so is other people around me. They can't get away. I'm going to tell them about Jesus. Every doctor and nurse I run to is another opportunity to show the love of Jesus. It's another opportunity to share a testimony that when I go to some third world country, God take care of it. And he started realizing this stone may not be moved in this present world. He has all of eternity to be without dialysis. But he said, I will use this time as a light and a witness for him. Some of you may have some type of stone right now in your life. You keep saying, Lord, take it, take it, take it. And God says, I, I want to use it. I don't want it used though, Lord. I, I want to use it though. Now the question comes once again in verse 10. Are you going to be the one that's excited for what God's doing? Or are you going to be the one weeping and mourning? I don't know where you're at. I've noticed this though, when somebody's in that woe is me mentality of my life is horrible and nothing ever works out, I have a huge stone in my life that can't be moved, there's nothing I can say to you that's going to take that away. That has to be between you and the Lord. Now that doesn't mean I don't try and it doesn't mean I don't care, but you have to come to a realization that okay God, I can't pick the size of stone in my life, I can't pick what the stone is, but in faith, I can trust that you're going to get me through this no matter what it is. Now, do you believe that? It goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. Lord, help my unbelief. Maybe that's what you're struggling with today. Lord, help my unbelief. Do we believe it? Maybe your stone is the stone of failure. That's not a physical thing. Just You just keep dropping the ball left and right and I can never take steps forward. I want to go deeper in my walk with the Lord and it's the classic three steps forward, two steps back. Or maybe for you it's two steps forward, three steps back. I'm not going deeper. The marriage isn't going deeper. The kids aren't doing any better. Work's not going any better. Well, see, did you notice back in verse 7 when the angel told him, go tell his disciples and Peter. Did you catch that in verse 7? Peter is singled out. Why? Because of all the twelve, probably next to Judas, Peter failed the worst. He was the one that was so confident, I'm never going to leave you, forsake you, deny you. And Peter was the one that was most broken by this. You may be that broken person today. You may be in a Peter moment of where you said, I have failed. I can't go deeper. I can't do anything right spiritually. I'm a failure. God wants to single you out and say, but yeah, but you're the one I can work with and I want to work with. I don't care whatever you're facing today. If it's a failure like Peter, if it's something physical, if it's something emotional, if it's something spiritual, whatever that stone is, God says, I can help you move this stone and get you through this. Just the question is, do we believe? 
that God can get us through it. Because the resurrection is the key to everything. If you're ever having a bad day, and these are the two thoughts I try to keep in my mind on a bad day, when the world is just falling apart, is number one, the tomb is empty, and number two, Jesus can return before that worry really becomes a worry. You ever think about that? That thing that you're so focused on that may be 24 hours away, maybe a week away, maybe two weeks away, maybe it's years away. Christ could return before all that and you don't even have anything to worry about. And even if He doesn't return, you realize the tomb's empty? Since the tomb's empty, what do we really have to be worked up about? Because by the tomb being empty, it shows that Christ won. See, how many times have we said it out here? Anybody could have got on the cross and said, I'm dying for your sins. I could get on the cross right now and say, I'm going to die for the sins of Harvest Fellowship. I could go through all that. Difference is, in three days, my grave will still be full of my remains. By the grave of Christ being emptied, it showed that Jesus won. Last week, we focused on that phrase, it is finished. See, it's finished. The tomb is empty. It is all done. The resurrection of Christ is the key to everything we do from here on out. Because if that tomb was not empty right now, what would be the point of any of this? I mean, what would be the point of getting together, praying, reading, studying, having faith in God? Because you would just say, James, Jesus is still dead. But by Jesus being alive, what is that shown? He rose, we can rise. It's that simple. Last place I'm going to have you turn to, and we're going to finish up here. 1 Corinthians 15. We talked about Hebrews 11 as the faith chapter. 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, who wrote the book of Corinthians through the Spirit, very logical guy. And the way he sometimes makes his theological arguments is just simple, straightforward logic. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Basically saying, okay, if we're telling you that Christ is raised from the dead, how can some of you say that no one will ever be raised from the dead? Verse 13. But if there's no resurrection of the dead then Christ is not risen. Very simply put, if none of us are going to live forever, then it means Christ didn't rise from the dead. Verse 14, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Guys, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are really wasting a lot of time right now. Really are. The reason we're here is because Jesus rose from the dead. Verse 15, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ and we did not raise up if in fact the dead did not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and here's the key, and you're still in your sins. See, by Jesus rising from the dead, sin has been defeated. goes back to that point we said earlier. Anybody can die on the cross for your sins. The resurrection proved that God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. So when God, when Jesus rose from the dead and the tomb is empty, God accepted that sacrifice Sin has been dealt with. The empty tomb is vital. Verse 18. Then also those who have fallen asleep, was just a uh, euphemism to say, died in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men the most pitiable. What he says in verse 19, if his Christ really isn't raised from the dead, Paul says we're really a pitiable group of people <laughs> because we keep preaching he's raised from the dead. We keep saying he's raised from the dead. We keep saying that's the key to it all because if it hasn't happened, we're a pretty pathetic group of people. 
But verse 20, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Look at verse 21 and verse 22. These are the key. For since by man came death, note little m in my new King James, by man, capital M, also came the resurrection of the dead in new King James, that's Jesus. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. See, by Jesus rising from the dead, it shows a victory over sin. It shows an eternity placed in Him. That's why we have hope. If the tomb was still empty, there would be no hope. You would come to me and say, James, I'm struggling. I would say, I'm struggling too. James, what are we going to do? I don't know. The grave is not empty. We have no hope. There's nothing. Depression would take over. What's the point of anything? Jesus couldn't defeat death. He couldn't defeat sin. We just have a destiny of hell waiting us. That's why people would say, just eat, drink, and be merry. There's no reason to do anything. But you know what? The grave is empty. Since the grave is empty, it means Jesus won. Since Jesus won, there's a future, there's a hope, there's a plan, there's a peace. The stone has been rolled away, and that's where faith kicks in. I just wrote down three things real quick on how I look at the resurrection and why I believe the resurrection is so important. First off, it proved God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. By the tomb being empty, it proved God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, let's be selfish. How does that affect us? Well, if it proved that God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus, that means your sins, my sins, can be forgiven because the tomb is empty. If Jesus was still in the tomb, we'd still have the sin problem to deal with. By Jesus... Being out of the grave, it shows the sin problem can be dealt with. Next one. It gives us a resurrection. Because Jesus defeated death and Jesus rose from the dead, that means we can rise from the dead too. After we taste death on this earth, we are given eternal life in heaven through Jesus Christ. So that's the next thing that we get out of it. And the last one, it gives us hope. A reason to live. Because if you may say, what's the point, what's the purpose? The point and purpose is the grave is empty. So therefore, you have hope in your life, I have hope in my life. There are some days where it is a pretty depressing world to be in. There's no doubt about that. But by the tomb being empty, we have hope. That there's a reason and a purpose why God is here and He wants to use me and He wants to go deeper with us and He wants to use you. There's a hope. That's the beauty of it. So as we look at the, how the early church responded... Well, let's just be honest. Their faith was a little lacking. But before we jump on them too much, your faith and my faith sometimes is a little lacking. question comes up is, do we believe the stone can be moved? Do we believe by that tomb being empty that that changes everything we do? Do we believe that that's what saves us, takes us deeper? Do we believe whatever stone we're facing in life can be moved just like that stone to the grave can be moved? That's the beauty of the resurrection. And that's why we wanted to do communion this morning. Because I believe in a lesson like this, it's important to stop and say, okay, God, I've got some pretty big stones in my life that need to be moved. Maybe it's spiritual. Maybe there's something you're facing right now. Now, just because I said communion doesn't mean I'm done. My goodness, guys. Could you close your Bibles up any quicker? Half tempted to take you to Malachi just to punish you. Um, just because... We're facing these things in life. The point, now you guys are afraid to put your Bibles away. Um, the point of communion is to really have a stop and say, okay, Lord, there, there are things in my life I can't handle, I can't face. It's time for us to go back and look at the cross and say, God, you defeated this problem of sin in my life. You help me, Lord. 
The Bible also talks about in Corinthians how it's a great time in communion to go to the Lord and ask for God's physical touch to be upon you. Maybe you're struggling with something physically. Take it to the Lord in communion. Maybe you're struggling with something spiritually. Take it to the Lord in communion. Maybe there's an emotional hurt in your life. Take it to the Lord. This is the purpose of communion is to go to Him and say, okay, Lord, whatever stone I'm facing in this life, please remove it. Please move it, Lord. And ask for that grace, that help, and that strength to get through whatever you're facing. Now, I always need to share a couple things here about communion. And for you that have been coming out, you've heard this before, but there always could be somebody new. We have an open communion policy at Harvest. We don't have church membership. So the way we look at it is communion is open to anybody as long as you have a personal relationship with Christ. Because here's the thing. Also, parents, we're going to be bringing in the older classes too soon. We leave it up to the parents to make sure you, if you believe your child is old enough to grasp and understand what communion is, then we'd love to have them partake with you as a family. But back to the relationship with Jesus. The purpose of communion is to look back to what Christ did for you and also to look forward to His return. That's what communion is. If you've never ever had that time where you said, okay, God, you are number one. I really do believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I really do believe that you are the only one that can save me from my sins. That you are the only one that can take me out of this world of sin and hurt and place me into eternal life in heaven. That's what it means to be saved. So often we throw around that word believe. Well, I believe in God. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Believe is more than just a head knowledge of stating a fact. Believe is saying in my heart, this is something that I place my faith, my trust in, and therefore that changes my life. The majority of people in the United States of America believe in God. And they believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. But is that belief a belief of a saving knowledge of really what that means and understands? And that's what we're here to do today, is before we partake of communion, is to make sure that we can go to the Lord quietly, Say, Lord, heal my hurt, physical, emotional, spiritual. Or, Lord, heal my heart spiritually. Because maybe I've had the head knowledge, but I don't have the heart knowledge, Lord. I want to really believe and have that relationship with you. And before we get ready to go into communion, it's always important to say, as 1 Corinthians 11 says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28, But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. God says we're supposed to examine ourselves. We're supposed to look at ourselves and make sure that we are saying, Lord, these things need to be taken care of. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. This is why before we take communion, we always stop and say, okay, God, this is what I'm struggling with. My life is not where it's supposed to be. Lord, here's the time for me to say, Lord, you touch my heart. You make me, you clean me into that image you want me to be. And maybe you've never had that relationship with Christ. Now's the time to go to him too and say, okay, Lord, I believe it. You died so I can live. You took care of my sins so I can have forgiveness. There's no magic words that need to be repeated. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That real belief of more than just the head knowledge, but a heart to say, I want to follow you.